happy post-Halloween Friday, dear friends, and welcome to a spooky edition of The Learning Curve. I am Kara Kandel of Pioneer Institute here with my super spooky co-host, Bob Bowden. We are here to talk about the important things, the very important things going on across the country this week in education. And of course, of course, here um, on the week of the release of the anticipated, the fiercely anticipated NAEP results, it seems that all of the predictions have come true. Headline from the 74, the one I, I like the most, is a disturbing assessment. Sagging reading scores, particularly for eighth graders, headline 2019's disappointing NAEP results. Okay, so to frame this for our listeners, the NAEP is the National Assessment of Educational Progress. It is really the only tool that we have to gauge over time um, what progress looks like across the country. So it's, it's a norm reference test given to a sample of kids nationally every couple of years. And every couple of years, we get all hyper about it. And then we realize that basically Basically, nothing has changed, right? So at its best, what NAEP really is, is a check on um, on state uh, test scores, right? So this is this was one of the genius things of No Child Left Behind, that NAEP, NAEP required states, even when they made their own criterion reference test, to continue to use NAEP so we could reveal basically how much state standards were or were not teaching students and how much state tests were or were not holding a high bar for students. The news is in that we are flatten math in fourth and eighth grade, down in reading, um, only eighth graders gained a single point. So this is not surprising news, right? That um, and you don't mean a percentage point. You're talking about no, the just a single point. So the basically, point, the nothing's raw score changed. Right. <laughs> basically, nothing's changed except that we've gone down in some areas. Now there are a few bright spots which we will talk about in a second. But here's a quote from the '74 article. Specific. I, I really like this because I think this is. I'm quoting um, Joanne Weiss quoted in the '74 talking about these eighth grade reading scores. So remember, NAEP, many say, will hold students to a higher bar than state tests. But let's remind our listeners that we complain a lot about state tests, but they are really designed to test to a very low bar. In many states, they are very, very low rigor. So if you're taking an eighth grade reading test, you might be being tested on fifth or sixth grade content, causing us to ask the question, what kind of expectations do we have for students? They can't even master that in a lot of cases. But Joanne Weiss says in the 74 article that since 1992, there has been no growth for the lowest performing students in either fourth grade or eighth grade reading. So that is our students who are struggling the most are reading at where they were nearly 30 years ago. Okay. She goes on to say, and this I find to be very, very important. We have an education system that is largely ignoring or does not understand. I would probably go with largely ignoring because, I don't know, former education professor of me knows a lot of people understand it and ignore it, that um, we don't, we ignore the research on teaching skills to read, those foundational skills, the decoding skills. We just really don't pay attention to the research about how to get every child to read by third grade. And as many of us know who already listen to this podcast, who are already in the ed community, we understand that third grade reading scores are hugely predictive of life outcomes for kids. So another disappointing year in NAEP. There was um, one bright spot, a couple bright spots, but one that I will point out, and I will say a lot of people predicted this, that Mississippi would continue to show a bit of progress. Now, let's frame this because Mississippi has long struggled with very low NAEP results. So it's phenomenal that they are showing an increase, um, you know, but it's easier to bring the bottom up than it is to bring the middle up or the top up. So let's acknowledge that. But we should also give a cheers to Mississippi because the fact of the matter is that some of the things they've done in the past decade, such as higher, more rigorous standards, standards that are more aligned to NAEP than many other NAEP standards, um, they've embraced those. And they've also, we've had some limited choice reform movements in Mississippi. So they're looking to places like Florida, which if you'll remember, saw the saw great gains um, on NAEP specifically the last time we tested NAEP um, in 2017, the last time we got results. But Mississippi seeing some increases there based on the hard work that takes a long time, it doesn't happen overnight, of ed reform. Okay, I've said a lot, Bob. What say you? Well, to frame it a slightly different way in terms of percentage of kids who are proficient, so this for our gentle listeners who will soon find themselves at a, I don't know, Thanksgiving dinner or uh, some sort of wherever you people go in the world, you know, in your own lives, and you're having a conversation, what percentage of our eighth graders are proficient in reading and math? 
I say this because it's the same number. It's really easy to remember. The reading and the math number came out the same. And the answer is 34%. That's all you need to remember. Or you can just remember about a third. You can remember that too. So, you know, post-Halloween party, whatever. Talk to your neighbors. You know what? Nationally, what percentage of our eighth graders are proficient in either reading or math? It's the same number, 34%. Uh, Fourth grade numbers were a little bit higher, 41% and 35% in math and reading, respectively. But uh, eighth grade, after all, is considered the best indicator of school systems because you're in the school system much longer, but generally most people haven't dropped out yet by the eighth grade. So that's why those numbers are are often uh, treated as most important. Now, now you now now Kara just mentioned the the Mississippi numbers. I, I was kind of a little amused by the fact that one of the reasons they gave Mississippi numbers that to explain why Mississippi numbers are better is that they aligned their tests more with what the NAEP tests. So it's almost kind of a oh, they taught more to the test this well, time than they did before. Let's back that up a little bit because I got to say, I don't know that you can actually teach to NAEP, but what is commonly understood is that NAEP is a higher bar. NAEP sets a higher bar than test. So I think what that meant to say, Bob, and maybe the 74 will come back and correct me, right, is that um, what Mississippi was really doing is recognizing that so many of our state criterion reference tests have really low standards. And sure, you can look back at NAEP released test items and things like that. But I don't know that teachers in Mississippi could actually teach to the NAEP. But what they're well, doing they, is they teaching two more points. rigorous they, academic content. They made two points. They said higher standards as one of the points. And then they also said aligning more of the content to, to what the NAEP tests as a second point. So I would separate those two, uh, to your point. I think that's fair. But anyway, uh, the other thing I wanted to say is in addition to they, you know, they said that only two jurisdictions saw statistically significant improvements over two years ago. One was Mississippi, the other was Washington, DC. This was yes. in the NAEP press Congrats release. Now, to yes. Yeah, so in the media call, the National Center for Education Statistics Associate Commissioner Peggy Carr observed that both of those jurisdictions, okay, you, you guys got it, Mississippi, Washington, D.C., had the biggest score gains in the history of their participation on the NAEP test. And so what I wanted to say about Washington, D.C. was that, first of all, it wasn't just Washington because – Oh, my goodness, no. Urban districts generally were praised, according to Michael Casterly. He's the executive director of this group called the Council on Great City Schools, and he was brought up for this big press conference they had for the NAEP test release that this guy, Michael Casterly, was talking about the urban school improvements. They say they're cutting the gap, that urban schools generally way underperform the nation, and now they underperform the nation much less than they used to, these urban schools. Washington, D.C. was the best improved, but he said all the urban schools, or many of the urban schools, are doing a lot better. Adding this, uh, Mr. Casserly saying this specifically. If you stand back and look at the larger picture, you will see a clear view of the headway that urban schools have made over the years. Several uh, several uh, city school districts, uh, in fact, deserve special recognition for their growth between 2017 and 2019. The District of Columbia Public Schools, as has been mentioned, and the Shelby County uh, schools have improved numerically ap- across the board. That is in all four grade subject combinations. Denver made numerical gains in three out of four subject grade combinations, as did Charlotte-Mecklenburg, Miami-Dade County, and San Diego. Fresno improved numerically in two, as did Atlanta, Clark County, Cleveland, Dallas, and Detroit. Overall, 21 of the 27 Tuda districts showed numerically higher scores in at least one subject grade combination between 2017 and 2019, a better pace than the state's. Okay, so so 21 of the 27 had an improvement in at least one of the four, meaning fourth grade math, fourth grade reading, eighth grade math, eighth grade reading. He's So if they could have a, a, a decline in three of the four, but an improvement of one of the four, and they would have made his criterion listed there for an improved city, only one of the four. But even forgetting all that, let's just talk about, say, Washington, D.C., you know. You know what else is happening in Washington D.C. and all, all pretty much all the other urban More areas? More than fifty percent of kids are in schools of choice. I don't know. Well, that's in D.C. That's true, but there, I went and counted. There's something like two new YouTube videos every day on one subject. I counted thirteen in the last week. Anyway, what's that subject called? 
gentrification. One of the videos was called 10 Cities with the Highest Gentrification. In fact, you want to guess what city number one for gentrification was? Washington, Washington D.C. Yes. Funny. Isn't that an amazing coincidence that you're only hearing that about here on the Learning Curve podcast? Bob, we are, so the most gentrification. Have, we are so lucky to have you watching YouTube. This, this is really the great. City with the most, now, if you believe there's a statistical correlation between income and better test scores, which everyone does— that means that if you see a place with more high-income parents moving in, you would expect test scores to increase. But nary a mention of that urban gentrification aspect on the at the NAEP press conference by Mr. Cassidy to no, him. No, well, we have awesome. to dig into, which I have to admit I have not done yet at this very early day. We have to dig into the real data of you know of what the um, what the demographics look like in those districts in terms of who, you know, who's taking the test and they'll, NAEP will report out, right? If who's, if we're closing gaps in those places, not just, you know, um, kids who are coming in sort of at a higher advantage. I would point out that a lot of those urban districts, not just Washington, D.C., have also embraced meaningful reform, meaningful reforms in meaningful ways. So like Denver, which we're going to talk about next, Denver has also been a place that has very made a huge concerted effort in the past decade to say, we're going to do things differently and we're going to teach differently and we're going to empower our parents. So I think okay, there's you your segue. You wrote your own segue. It's a, it's a perfect segue. You might be onto something there, my friend. And I do want to hear more about your YouTube re research in the very <laughs> future. <laughs> oh, please. It's a, that's just kind of a, you know, anecdotally <laughs> funny that I've looked at YouTube. But stuff, Bob, it's great. But oh, let's, I mean, there's no doubt. About, let's talk about Denver because a very oh. consequential election coming up. So um, this out of the Wall Street Journal. Right. It's, it's an opinion piece out of The Wall Street Journal. Denver's education stakes. So uh, according to the article, two years ago, all seven members of Denver's Board of Education were sympathetic to education reform after the 2017 election um, that fell to five. And teachers unions kind of got people on the board that um, that were more aligned with them. And now they've got three seats on the ballot in the November 5th election, and it's not looking too good. People are predicting that control of the board could flip to the members who are favored by the union. So what does that mean? So in a place like Denver, so think of the reforms. Now, one of the things I love about Denver, we've got some really good friends who live in the Denver area. And when I ask them, I don't know, over dinner one night, like, how are the kids doing? How do you love your school? You know, they told me, oh, I love my school. The kids are in a, in a great school, et cetera, et cetera. My friends, they said the name of the school. I recognized it immediately as a charter school that I had worked with in the past. They had no idea that their kids were enrolled in a public charter school. Oh, and really? that's an amazing, amazing thing because Denver has done uh, reforms that empower parents very, very well. But other things it's done well, a teacher evaluation system. Now, some teachers don't like it. Teacher evaluation systems can sometimes be overly complicated, and that is one critique. But there's been a real move to holding teachers accountable to being transparent, and they've also done accountability well. So we see the gains that Denver has made. We see it on NAEP. We see it in a lot of other places, a lot of great stuff going on, a place that's been willing to embrace reforms. But it could now all be, um, I'll be, I'll go away, um, depending on the whim of the school board. So I'm thinking, number Number one is the pendulum of reform swinging, as we often see it do. Uh, see it, we often see it swing sort of once every 10 to 20 years. We go radically one direction, yay, accountability, radically another. Oh, my goodness, please stop with all of this accountability. And I also think that this points us in the important direction of the idea of elected versus um, appointed school boards, right? So people love to say, like, oh, we need elected school boards. That's how you hold school boards accountable. But I, I think that we ask a really serious question, like, is the account is the school board accountable to special interests or is it accountable to parents? Um, and I know in this, the answer. I know the answer to that. I think we both know the answer to that, and it makes a really strong case. I think for appointed school boards that can hold reform takes a long time, and when you can avoid that kind of policy churn and hold reforms in place, that's when we see meaningful results. So get you know the answer, Bob. Give us your. <laughs> well, look, I, I've talked. To, I have uh, friends who I, uh, 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 
person I know who I won't identify him for this uh, context, but he was a mayor in New Jersey for many years. He was a Democrat, by the way. He he got rid of the elected school board and said, told me, you know, kind of like off the record ish. He kind of said, you know, you can get better people if they don't you don't make them run for office and you just find really talented people who you can appoint to help run a school system or, you know, in, in a city, you can get better people. And it made instant sense to me. And I think it's, uh, you know, t- to your point, yes, yeah, so often these elected school boards are surrounded by special interests, namely teachers unions, but also principal unions in some places. So they have uh, unionized principals and other or, or other just groups that uh, have interests that represent Oh, the janitors, all kinds of workers have their own groups and they kind of descend often on the on. In fact, there's times even where school board members are themselves teachers and themselves members of the union. There are times where they're negotiating with themselves. They are on the school board and they are members of unions while they're negotiating with the unions. That's a great uh, so, Pardon? That's a great setup, Bob. It works well. Yeah, no, right. Yeah, no. Actually, you, you're you're kidding, but the fact they actually do love it. They actually think it, they think it is great. They think this is oh, look how much knowledge I have about uh, you know. In fact, the more insider I become, the more knowledgeable I am. So I you should just literally have like nobody else have any influence at all because they are less knowledgeable than I am about the the bureaucracy. You know, we should have like sort of bureaucrats. You know, those benefiting from the bureaucracy making all the decisions because they know the bureaucracy the best. I mean, they some of these people believe this. So, so uh, yeah, I mean, I'm uh, gee, it's it's it, I I shudder to think what Denver could do in that kind of scenario. I, my my you know my only hope I have two hopes. I have a short term and a long term hope for this kind of scenario, uh, and then I'll shut up, Kara. My short term hope is that charter growth will just continue because demand has you know gotten to some sort of critical mass where it's hard to choke it off and kill it at this point in many places not all but many places charter growth will be the short term and the long term is that education technology will sweep in and and prove so immediately useful and immediately superior it'll be like this technology in all kinds of ways cannot be contained when it does a better job than uh was the case before the technology was there, and that that itself will usher in a certain degree of educational freedom that had not been the case before. You know, Bob, I told you we wanted a hopeful story this week, so I'm glad oh. that you gave us some hope because I had I had a hard time finding something that gave me hope. It was very depressing, I have to say. <laughs> but now, now let's let's move on because our next story. Um, yes, depressing, but also very close to my heart, because I think, as you know, I grew up outside of Detroit, Michigan, in a place called Canton, Michigan. And um, today on NBC News, uh, our dear Detroit is back is back in the news, maybe a little hope, because NBC News has a, has a an article titled, How a Lawsuit Over Detroit Schools Could Have an Earth-Shattering Impact. So this actually isn't just about Detroit schools. It's also about Rhode Island's schools. And I'd like to start by saying, before we describe what these lawsuits are about, I'd like to start by by saying Detroit is one of those places that has seen such hard times in in every arena and education is all all in there right in the past well gosh 20 years more I mean I can remember as a kid right but one of the things you remembered the teachers were striking back in Detroit a few years back and I have to say for as little sympathy as I have for what's going on uh, still going on yes as as at the reporting of this co- reporting of this podcast in Chicago in Detroit teachers were striking because they were literally kids were going to schools in places that didn't have roofs, in places that are filled with rats. I mean, really horrible stories. Now, to my mind, that is a reason to say, we've got to fix this, and I'm not going to show up for work until you fix this. It wasn't helping the kids, but, you know, um, they also weren't being helped in school. But so now in Detroit and Rhode Island, a place that is very much like Detroit, as we've discussed before on this podcast, there are a couple different cases winding their way through federal courts. And now these cases are really interesting because they're basically questioning questioning um, the extent to which a city or a state has to uphold a person's constitutional right to an education. Now, this is really, really fuzzy, right? Because as we know, there's no federal authority for education, and then different states have different clauses in their state constitutions. Now, over time, we've had we've seen plenty of lawsuits. They're often referred to as adequacy lawsuits, starting back in the day um, with what it wasn't actually an adequacy lawsuit, but an 
equity lawsuit. But these are these are cases that argue that either we should have equal funding for all schools or later on cases that started saying, such as a, very, a case that we had in Massachusetts that was a huge game changer in ed reform. Um, Hancock versus Driscoll uh, started out as the McDuffie case and then became Hancock versus Driscoll. And these cases basically argued that there had to be some minimum thing, minimum amount of funding that the state would have to provide everybody, meaning every school district, to ensure an adequate education. So these cases, this funding argument has been a non-starter in a lot of places. And these cases in Detroit and Rhode Island are actually arguing something fundamentally different. So now I'm quoting the article here in saying that the Plaintiffs in the Detroit case are essentially saying to the federal courts that whatever the quantum of education is that you need to exercise your constitutional rights, like to live in a democracy, right, basic literacy, a basic understanding of how democracy works, um, if these things aren't happening in schools, then, then the kids are not having their constitutional rights realized. So... The thinking goes that if these cases wind their way all up to the Supreme Court, they're going to have to answer a really fundamental question about what what is the constitutional right to education. And it's also, you know, then also begs the question of what could be a potential remedy. So if the courts were to decide or if the court was to decide that, yeah, you can actually provide such a disgustingly subpar brand of education that you're violating a human being's constitutional rights, what's the remedy? Do you have to give them an option to go elsewhere? Uh, pouring more money into the system clearly doesn't work. Thank you very much. Um, but this is just a really interesting one to watch. And like I said, near and dear to my own heart. What do you think? Yeah. So I'm I'm of two minds of this, and you and and you 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 cited this yawning gulf to me between problem and remedy, and that's exactly where I stand on this. In other words, when these judges tend get tend to get presented these kinds of problems, what do they do? They don't order. Uh, maybe paying great teachers more than underperforming teachers. They don't order private school choice solutions to empower those gifted teachers to start their own schools and be entrepreneurs. They don't order student-based budgeting so that taxpayer funding is tied to students instead of school buildings. No, no, they, they'll take the problem and they have an immense electron microscope focus on Diagnosing the problem, problem requiring plaintiffs to exhibit overwhelming evidence that there's a, you know, that that they that they can't read or or you know, you know, people will say, uh, well, we need, you know, they'll say, so, so they say, they'll say, you know, the judge will say, so what do we do about this? And the plaintiffs say, well, obviously we need to pour more money in the system. We don't have enough money here. Yeah. We need and give it to the we same more unaccountable people. Failing, yeah. Yeah. So from Supreme Court judges from Washington State to Kansas to New Jersey have blindly ordered more spending in all public in public schools in all these kinds of cases, and it never does anything. They'll they they and they spend almost no time, by the way, on analysis of the remedy. They they spend an immense amount of time on diagnosing the problem. Here's a here's a metaphor for you. It's like people keep robbing a bank, and you say like, are, are you sure the bank's being robbed? Yep, we got here's our bank robbing data. Two times a week, uh, once the week before, a bank was robbed three times the week before that. And so the, the, the judge will be like, hmm, so are you sh you're absolutely sure. He, you're sure the bank is being robbed. Yeah, here's a picture of the guy with a gun and he's got a bank robber's mask on. Okay, and, and, you're, and bank robbing is bad? Yeah, absolutely. We have no money after the bank gets robbed. Okay, I'm the judge. I'm now going to rule after this extensive inquiry that the town bank is being robbed, and I hereby order some geraniums and carnation flowers to be planted in the bank flower bed. And, and then they go like, actually, judge, we already tried planting flowers as a response to the last 20 times the bank was robbed. It's not working. And then they the, the just judge keep goes, getting trampled, the flowers. Yeah, right, exactly. And they're just like, yeah, but the florist says it's a good idea to keep planting more flowers every time the bank wait, is. Wait, wait, wait. So I, I take your point. I see what you're saying. And I get it. You don't like judges. That's okay. But making policies, right, deciding on policies to fix our problems for us. So if we look to the generation of adequacy lawsuits, I think one of the things that we see, not everywhere, but certainly in many places, and I will point to the state of Massachusetts, because I think that we have data to say that post-education reform, meaning after the Massachusetts Education Reform Act of 1992, and if I got that year wrong, somebody edit it out and correct it because I should know, but that the reforms that were put in place, the remedies that the state 
then had to put in place were remedies that made a meaningful difference. And in putting those remedies in place, Massachusetts was looking to other states that had made remedies. After Massachusetts did it, other states started to look to Massachusetts after they had their own adequacy lawsuits. And those remedies, and this is where we get the era of accountability. This is where we get the era that says, you know what, we can actually use data to understand if our schools are serving kids or if our schools are not serving kids. And actually, maybe we need to open up school choice to more families, right? So I think that I'm a little more optimistic on this one than you, Bob. And boy, oh boy. I think in Massachusetts, you have a a, a decent example. I think when when the Kansas Kansas Supreme Court and the New Jersey Supreme Court and the Washington State Supreme Court is all, they're all throw money at the problem court decision. All of those other ones. So, yeah, I mean, so maybe you're coming from Massachusetts with that and you wrote a book about it and you make valid points about it. But maybe it's not the most common response. Are that you saying have. that I live in a Massachusetts bubble? Yes. Coming up, the great Frank Edelblut, the commissioner of New Hampshire Department of Education, will be my guest. And we'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. We are pleased to be joined by Frank Edelblut. He is the commissioner of the New Hampshire Department of Education. And in his role as commissioner, he serves on a number of boards, including trustee for the University System of New Hampshire. But he's also a businessman who started his career as a certified public accountant. And so we have a lot to talk with Mr. Edelblut about. And first of all, thank you, Frank Edelblut, for being our guest on the Learning Curve podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start right there in that you are unconventional. You went from the private sector to government. I guess that's I wouldn't exactly call that, uh, uh, you know, that, that it's a precedent setting. It's how you've heard of it to some degree, but oftentimes, especially yeah, some, the somewhere else. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I know. Yeah, we're both thinking the same thing. But uh, in, in the education space in particular, it is often that people do come up from school systems to take the job you have now. So tell me your, and of course you get pushback about, you know, Betsy DeVos, et cetera, for not having been a teacher. It's in the political, uh, you know, primary uh, fodder for the candidates who, the Democrats who are running for president, et cetera. So just your thoughts without weighing into that so much, but just your thoughts on, on someone who, um, you know, I, I made a, a quick aside. I made a, a point on this podcast a few episodes ago about how the secretaries of defense for the United States are not usually coming right out of the Pentagon. They're usually someone who's a civilian who is the secretary of defense. So that's the analogy I would give to your kind of role, someone who is not a product of the education system becoming a state commissioner. What are your thoughts on that question? So I would agree with you, and I would say that it actually worked to my advantage um, to not having come up through the ranks of the schools, not that that is a, uh, not a legitimate way to get here. Um, you know, partly that's because I don't have any preconceived notions. I mean, I am knowledgeable about education. I was knowledgeable before I came here. Um, I have grown in my knowledge of the domain considerably in the role here. Um, you know, and I have, but I have a passion for education, uh, you know, a lifelong passion for education in not just for myself, but really just knowing that that is a pathway to unlock uh, futures for kids. It is a pathway to break the poverty cycle. Um, so really think that because I haven't uh, lived in the environment, it's given me an opportunity to look at things with fresh set of eyes. And to try and say, like, how could we do this different? Or why are we doing something like this? Have you thought about other approaches? Um, So it's been really fun to work with educators. um, And there's some great folks that I get to work with in education who um, they really appreciate that fresh perspective. You know, because there's some do. I'm sorry to interrupt. Some do, but I bet bet you get some hate, too, don't you? (laughs) Do you get some pushback on that? Uh, Well, so there are folks who are really steeped in the traditional education models and how things have always been done. Um, I think you find that across all different kinds of domains. And so, uh, you know, I'm, you know, that just tells me that I have to be that much more persuasive in trying to help them move forward and help them find a different pathway to help, uh, you know, create bright futures for kids. And what we have to recognize is that those opportunities are there. I often say I've been in this role now for over two years now. And I would tell you that I still, every day when I come in, I still see a lot of low-hanging fruit. And what I mean by that is 
there are still opportunities to improve the system, uh, both in terms of the system's ability to perform, but as well as the system's ability to, you know, help children achieve success um, that are just laying around all over the place. And it's just, there's just <laughs> not enough time in the day to gather them all up and, and implement them. Well, what's an example of that? When you say an easy, low-hanging fruit piece of innovation to do to either eliminate waste or create better educational outcomes, is there something you have in mind? Um, so I have a lot of different areas in mind, um, but I'll focus maybe on a couple as, as we you know, think about this issue. I mean, one is just, and this is more systemic, so I'm thinking kind of broadly across the system, um, the innovation cycle. You know, so I, I did start my career as an accountant, and then I was an entrepreneur, uh, have owned tech companies, I've been in venture capital. And one of the things that, you know, you see in that other domain is, uh, you know, the importance of a rapid innovation cycle. Because, you know, the faster you can innovate and create, you know, value for someone, the faster you get it into the market and it gets deployed and it gets used and it's, you know, beneficial. Um, in education, I find that the innovation cycle is far too long. I mean, it can take, you know, three years to get a decent idea germinated and out to the field. And then if you want to see it implemented on scale, it can take even longer. And oftentimes by then, the very conditions that that innovation is trying to address have shifted. They've moved. Like the markets are moving quickly. And so as a result of that, many of the stuff that ultimately gets placed into the systems, you know, are, are too little and they're too late. And so we have to find ways to allow that innovation cycle to really accelerate um, and move forward. And part, that, part of what I think is the driver behind that is sort of a, a systemic idea that somehow failure is, uh, you know, not success. And I know that sounds kind of oxymoronic right there, the way I've described that. But, um, you know, it, there's the idea of fast failing in a lot of domains, which is basically you want to be able to try something, figure out if it's going to work. And if it's not going to work, that's okay. You get to move on. And sure. now I'm not sure if it's because in the education domain, we talk so much about, you know, academic performance. Everybody wants to be an A performer, right? So nobody wants to try something that might turn out to be an F or a D or a C in a project. Yeah. Um, and but, so, but, but if I, if I can jump in, what, what, what's an example of a low hanging fruit innovation that you discovered? So I'm, you put me on the spot here. I'm trying to think of <laughs> no, exact okay. thing. You know, of course, when you ask me the question, I'm going to have to come up with one. I have a desk filled with projects that we are working on in terms of <laughs> different sorry. things that we're trying to do. Um, but that's okay. Um, you know, I'm thinking of maybe our, uh, you know, our New Hampshire Career Academy. So here is a solution that was just sitting there waiting to happen, uh, which is an approach to trying to help accelerate students who have that inclination um, you know, into their secondary education, but then beyond that into their post-secondary education in terms of how to accelerate it. So we created the New Hampshire Career Academy that allows students to uh, simultaneously be doing their college and their high school work so that they overlap and they can complete simultaneously. Um, sure. And by the end of their 13th year, they can finish up an associate's degree. Uh, they'll also have a uh, industry recognized credential. They'll get their secondary degree and they've got an interview with a job or with a New Hampshire company to move forward. So maybe that it. is one of the examples. But there's, a, I, you I know, know, and I you, apologize. You honestly, through, that's, not a, that's not a great example, because, but I can tell you that there's, <laughs> there's lots of opportunity out there. But it's it's under implemented those kinds of things that that's I think it's I think it is a great example because it really changes lives. It's a model that does exist elsewhere, so we you can see how people have done it. But it is not scaled in any way close to what it could I think to help more students. And so I I, I think it's scaling something like that is a great idea actually. Uh, let let me switch gears a little bit. You know earlier in the podcast uh, we were talking about the NAEP scores that just came out uh, this week. Yeah. The patients report. Card and, and and how do you uh, and your department you know see these kinds of numbers you know eighth graders national numbers I don't have the New Hampshire pulled up in front of me but thirty four percent both math and reading proficiency for eighth graders <clears throat> across the United States so a third of our eighth graders are proficient in math and reading two thirds are not testing proficient are you the kind of guy who says oh that's uh, you know standardized testing is overemphasized in this space and um, I don't really care about that stuff. Or are you, do you kind of see this as, oh, no, I do look to these sorts of indicators and tests as some sort of litmus for what we, uh, 
what our what, what our challenges are. Yeah, so I, I mean, I absolutely think that the system needs some objective accountability, right, as opposed to just being accountable to itself. Um, I'm, you know, with regard to that, when I look at these, the results, and those performance results have not changed or they've gotten worse a little bit, you know, over time, they're not inconsistent with my own, you know, statewide assessment results. And it really, it begs the question, right? So we, as an education system, the system says, here's our academic standards, here's what you as a student need to know to be successful in life, and we define that. And those, those results, whether they're the fourth grade, the eighth grade, or even in 11th grade, when I look at some of my SAT results, we say, here's what you need to be successful. We put a kid through you know, 11 or 12 years of the system, we assess whether or not they have those skills, we get less than half to that goal, but then we graduate 90% of the kids. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that this is just not a system that is functioning but we are unwilling or unable to ask the really hard questions to say like, well, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. How could we, you know, there's no other domain where you can get half of the job done and say mission accomplished. Right. You know, I think I live up here in New Hampshire and, you know, we have to plow the roads. Imagine Department of Transportation plow, you know, it was a big snowstorm and they plow half the roads and they say, hey, we're all done. Didn't we do a great job, guys? We'd all say like, no, you know, you got to get it all the way done. So um, I think you need objective measures. Um, those objective measures that we're using are the best measures that we have in place. We're doing, trying to do some creative things up in New Hampshire around it, you know, uh, assessment and trying to find other ways for students to be able to demonstrate that they've got, you know, the capacity that we're looking for. Um, but I think you need an objective measure in order to know if kids are learning the things that we want them to be learning. Let me ask you about school choice. You, I understand some of your children have been homeschooled. You've also been public about support for school choice options. Uh, New Hampshire has a tax credit scholarship that was passed in 2012 and uh, is unique in some ways. It, it, so some homeschool families are able to receive some of uh, the tax credit uh, advantages. I, I learned that by listening to the Ed Choice podcast uh, with my friend Kate Baker, who was a guest recently. And um, I, I guess I wanted to ask you, you know, your thoughts on that space and how it can grow to be larger. And, and then also, I understand it's means tested, uh, your tax credit scholarship. And so some might not even be aware that there are low income uh, families in New Hampshire because it's not thought of as a a place with a big urban center somewhere. But um, so talk about school choice and I guess, um, well, your views on how that footprint might grow. Yeah. So when I think about um, school choice, I, I really have to back up a little bit and think about my perspective of how we view uh, education, you know, altogether. And I mean, I think what we really need is a, what I refer to is I think we need a very student centered model because I think that Students are individuals. They're very different. Um, they come at, uh, you know, their education very differently and they have different pathways and different needs. It seems so, it doesn't make any sense to me the way that we've built kind of this linear learning model, right? So you start at a certain point and you move through this linear line up through, you know, the completion of your uh, secondary education. And that is that that model flies in complete contrast to the learning science, which tells us how kids learn, which is very erratically. I often tell people, I'm like, look, if you want to know how kids learn, you know, go home, open up the closet if you've had kids and look at the little marks on the wall on the inside of the closet, which indicate their growth chart. And what you'll find is, is sometimes those lines are close together. Sometimes they're far apart. And that's the way that kids grow. They have a growth spurt, right? And, or maybe they plateau for a little bit. And that's how the kids are learning. The difficulty is we've built this learning, a learning model that just kind of advances along. And so if it's, you know, June 19th and the school year ends and the kid's on the, the low side of that growth curve, he's going to have a gap or he or she is going to have a gap in their learning and they're just going to pick up that growth curve the next year. And it's just not going to serve the students well. Um, so we have to find ways to break that down. I mean, another way I sometimes think about it is, and I challenge educators, uh, you know, are we actually teaching algebra in 180 days or are we teaching 180 days of algebra? Because those are two very different things in terms of what the students are getting. And part of this is driven by what I refer to as the cohort model. You know, systems are built on premises. It's like, what do you believe about the system? And the current system is built on the premise that you can 
educate kids as a group of students. Like we, you know, it's uh, sometimes I refer to it as the astrological method of education because we basically, the day you were born, plus or minus 180 days, and that's what you should somehow know. And that just re doesn't reflect, again, how students actually learn and how they're going to be growing and progressing. And what happens, you can see this in the system in terms of what we believe. And it's often the questions that we ask about the system, I think, reveal this. So oftentimes people will say to me, you know, like, uh, you know, what size class should I have? You know, should it be 15, right. 18, 20, 25? And I'm like, you'd only ask that question if you believe that you could put 20 kids in a class and they would be so similar that they could all be learning the same thing at the same time on the same day, right? It almost, um, it almost seems, just to jump in on that, like borderline almost kind of crazy that we came up somehow yeah. 100 years right. ago – we decided let's shove a bunch of like nine-year-olds all in the same room. Why? Well, because they're all nine. So they should all yeah. be in that one room together. As if they're as all the same. If... Anybody who knows nine-year-olds knows they're not at all alike, right? They're very different children. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think the premise, and, and really the premise that I push for, and I think that we should change to, is I call it the curious learner model, right? And so that's my premise, and it's important to recognize your premise, but it just recognizes that kids are inherently curious and they want to learn. And sort of an anecdote or maybe two anecdotes that kind of illustrate this point is if you don't believe that kids are inherently curious and they want to learn, take a three-year-old and leave them alone for an hour in the kitchen. It's not going to be a pretty sight, right? Because they're going to do something. You're not going to wait for somebody to get a worksheet for them or to tell them what to do. They're just they're curious. Right. They're going to open you, And you'd also learn in. something about the importance of agency and their own curiosity, their own control Absolutely. guiding the learning process as being important in their buy-in, in their enthusiasm, because Think they about are it curious. For a sec. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, don't. I don't mean, but I mean, yeah, so I'm just, I'm reiterating what you're saying, but like, think about it a sec. Before these kids even show up for school at five years old, they've already mastered an oral language, right? I've got kids who spend four years in high school trying to learn a foreign language and they're terrible at it. These are kids who've never been in school and they've already learned a language, you know? Right. And so what we really have to do is to create a system that unleashes that curiosity and allows kids to pursue things that are, that they can be passionate about and that they have an interest in. And through that process, we can integrate the broader learning objectives that we have for them. But to try and have this kind of compulsory education, you know, if it's September 9th and I'm sitting in this class, I have to be learning this thing. Right. It's just a model that I think is revealed in some of those assessment results, going back to your previous question, that we're looking at. Uh, we had a school. Let me I'll give you an example. So we had a school here. We have a science assessment in 11th grade. And um, we, in uh, you know, one of the schools, they said to the students, look, if you are proficient on this statewide science assessment, then you can get a pass and you don't have to take the final exam at the end of the semester in this science class. We had a 20% jump in proficiency in that one class because of that one incentive that we provided for the, uh, for the kids. So right. clearly, you know, the compulsory approach of just telling you, like, here's the day, this is what you got to do, is not going to engage our students it's not going to help build the skills and the capacity they need to be kind of curious learners on into life. Because we all know, I mean, that you described in the beginning of this podcast, I've been through a couple of careers already myself, and that's what's going to happen. So you want students who have that curiosity nurtured so they want to learn, they want to grow, they want to explore and learn about different things, and they're going to sure. be much better adults later on in life. Sure. At the risk of wading to the perilous waters of uh, culture okay. here, Frank, we have, as you know, you know, we publish a daily newswire here at choicemedia.tv, both on Twitter and on the web and on our smartphone app. We And it's uh, more and more we're seeing stories about violent kids and schools. And I just wanted to actually almost just use that as a introduction to sort of school culture to read to read something from the New Hampshire union leader I'm looking at right on my computer from October 15th a couple weeks ago state weighs what to do about violent kids and schools afraid to stop them this is in your state and I'll just read a couple sentences. It says, House Education Committee Chairman Mel Meyer brought to the committee studying violence in New Hampshire schools a tale of injuries, he was told about, from kindergartners, Michael, who punches and pinches with reckless abandon, and Matthew, who throws things in class. Quote, the teacher told me her classroom daily has to shut down three to five times due to the behavior, Myler told the panel, declining to identify the town or school building where these multiple incidents occurred over the past month. 
quote, last Friday, Michael began to pin the teacher against the wall and hit and pinch her. She has the marks to prove it. She has not had the administrative support she needed, close quote. Uh, school culture is, in some places, it's in trouble, isn't it? And what, what, do you, what, what, what do you say when people ask you about it? Well, so let me reflect on that, and I'm going to go back to what we were talking about really just a minute ago, because you see this across the board and in a lot as well in a lot of the social emotional learning responses that we are seeing. And essentially what we've done is uh, we have created an environment, right? That is this compulsory environment, not this curious learner environment that has some adverse effects. There was a recent study that came out from uh, the Journal of American Medicine of Pediatrics uh, that pointed out that um, you know, children, just because they're young for their age, right? So if they are on the backside of that class and so they're the youngest person in the class, they are 1.4 times more likely to be diagnosed with a learning disability. We already knew they're 1.3 times more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD. And they're also 1.4 times more likely to be diagnosed with depression. So we've created an environment. Well, I had not heard not that. That's necessary. fascinating. Yes, a recent study came out by the Journal of Pediatrics, and this is a longitudinal study, so they were looking back. So what's happened is we've created this environment, this instructional environment, that has, it, it, it spins off these adverse behaviors by children, right? And so then what it seems to me that we're trying to do is we come in with these programs that are designed to help the kids cope with this, you know, theoretically or possibly hostile environment that they're trying to live in, as opposed to saying like, rather than try and create skills to exist in kind of this environment that may not be conducive for everybody to learn in, right? We know half the kids are doing okay, but half the kids are not doing well, according to our results. Maybe what we need to do is go back to the root cause and figure out, can we create an environment where kids are not in a place where they need to, or they want to, or they feel compelled to lash out? either, you know, for any number of reasons. And there's not, you know, I don't want to place any judgments. And, and so really, I think you really need to systemically look at what is it that is driving that behavior. You know, when kids are acting out, they're responding to something, they're communicating, they're trying to tell us something. And maybe what they're trying to tell us is that, you know, this learning environment where I'm cohorted with my peers, um, you know, I am regularly told that maybe I'm not performing, right? If you imagine like, so we put these kids in a class and some of these kids are, you know, that we give them grades and you know, we have the grading. So we're giving them the grades and we're saying like, Hey, you know, these kids got A's, you got C's. Imagine if every day you had to go to work and you were told like, Hey, you didn't quite measure up, but maybe next year or maybe next week or something like that, you'll, you know, you'll be better off. So I'm not sure we're really, that those environments are, are conducive to, um, you know, healthy development for some of the students. He is Frank Edelblut, Commissioner of New Hampshire's Department of Education. Who He's been a CFO, a entrepreneur, and in fact, holds a master's in theological studies. What an interesting gentleman, Frank Edelblut. Thanks for being our guest on, on the Learning Curve podcast. We appreciate your time. Happy to be here. Thanks so much. Bye. All right, welcome back. So this is a commentary of the week. I've got it. This from the great Jonathan Butcher and published by the Chicago Sun-Times. And my friend Jonathan writes, tired of the teacher's strike? Remember that charter school are an option. He writes, charters can keep students in school, saving families from having to make other arrangements to meet work and family commitments. And yes, I know there's some handful of of unionized charter schools in, in Chicago in particular. It seems to be the haven for unionized charters, Chicago is. But now that said, most of them are still not unionized. And, um, you know, one out of every four Chicago high school students attends a charter school. So, yes, I as I as I said last week, and I like to say as often as possible, Kara, they call it a teacher strike. I call it charter school advertising. Charter school advertising. Well, let's hope. I have this week, Bob, our tweet of the week from our friend Corey DeAngelis. Um, Corey, who tweets almost prolifically as our president, but I have to say, Corey, thank you. I enjoy you so much more. Um, and this this is a really good one brought to my attention by Bob, I, I have to admit. So um, 
And I'm going to apologize in advance to my husband who doesn't like it when I have a potty mouth, but this is, as Corey said, a holy shit moment. And his tweet was, holy shit, I'm the first to figure it out. I'm nearly certain Elizabeth Warren sent her son to an expensive private school in Austin, Texas, the Kirby Hall School. Warren has been trying to cover this up since she fights against school choice. And this is part of a longer thread, and Corey goes on to say that he doesn't begrudge Warren's child for attending the private school, but this is about Elizabeth Warren who I will remind everybody was once for private school choice. But now, interestingly, that she's a senator running for president, thinks it's not such a good idea. So thank you, Corey, for that um, investigative work. Yeah. We appreciate Inter- it. Interestingly, the Warren campaign now claims that the 2003 book in which she referenced, used the word vouchers, uh, supportably, Elizabeth yes. Warren, they claim that, act- they now say that she actually meant a kind of a public school choice voucher rather than what everyone normally assumes the word to mean. Of course she did, because she's just a Harvard professor. She didn't understand those things. (laughs) But um, but Corey, she gets to the bottom of that. I also got sucked into the vortex on this a little bit. I was kind of like, oh, let me see. So it turns out that one of... Elizabeth's two children is named Alex, her son named Alex. It turns out that Cora DeAngelis found the picture somewhere of a school yearbook from the private school in Austin, Texas, where Alex Warren attended, I think it was 1987, and has his picture, smiling face, name Alex Warren, and then he shows the picture of that is part of the Warren family picture of this same boy from about that era. It really does look like the very same boy named Alex. Of course, she was living in Austin at the time when this Alex Warren was attending the school. So it's it's all it lines up with. Uh, with it lines uh, up, but I'm putting yeah. Beth on. She's going to remain mum. You have uh, a gentle listener. You have uh, successfully completed yet another episode of the Learning Curve podcast. And while I. Uh, our time away from you may feel lonely and you may feel adrift. I'd say take heart because one week from now, we'll have yet another episode with the great Lindsay Burke from the Heritage Foundation, who will be our guest. We look forward to talking with Lindsay. We look forward to uh, hearing more from you guys. And for now, that's all for me. I'm Bob Bowden with Choice Media. And I'm Kara Kandel with Pioneer Institute. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.